Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts. Specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by WorldPay from FIS. Did you know that omnichannel shoppers spend up to three times more than single-channel shoppers? With WorldPay's omnichannel platform, you can turn single transactions into smarter connected customer experiences. So while you set the style trend, we can help maximize your omnichannel payment spend. Let's reinvent smarter. Visit FISglobal.com. I feel like we have to really reassess and really admit that there is something irrelevant about what we bring to the table right now. Fashion shows don't have to be relevant right now. There's so many other things that are more important. Scap really, the way that you have configured it, does attract a certain kind of person. You can't define it, but nevertheless, you have to have a, a certain appetite for life to respond to what you've been doing. This is like alternative couture, because if you want a huge, extravagant tool ball gown, you know where you can go to find that. For me at Scaparelli, we're not gonna do that. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion, and welcome to the BOF Podcast. On a recent episode of BOF Live, our editor-at-large, Tim Blank, sat down with Daniel Rosebury, now the artistic director of Scaparelli. Tim tracks the journey that Daniel has taken from a behind-the-scenes designer at Tom Brown to the man who takes a bow at the end of Scaparelli's fashion shows. Tim and Daniel also talk about the role of fashion in the era of COVID-19 and how fashion can be relevant in this particular time. Here's Daniel Rosebury, Inside Fashion. We are talking to 
Daniel Rosebury, who for one year and three months has been a designer at Scaparelli in Paris, which actually makes him one of the new standard bearers of haute couture. And this seems like a very interesting moment to be talking about haute couture with Daniel, apart from the fact that he has many interesting opinions about it. <laughs> Uh, this, this seems to me a moment when uh, people are reassessing fashion. Uh, people, are, people are looking at, uh, people are searching for new ways to um, make fashion relevant and give it meaning, um, make it sustainable. Uh, and these and other issues to a very large degree are addressed by haute couture in, in quite unexpected ways. So, um, Daniel, welcome. Thank you. And uh, I would like to ask you right off the bat, what did haute couture mean to you in your evolution as a designer? What did it yes. mean to me before, you before this whole thing? Um, I think it, it meant to me probably what it means to everybody who studies or loves fashion, it was really, you know, kind of the pinnacle of fantasy. I always, you know, I have visions of Lacroix, Saint Laurent, that kind of, even like Carl from the 90s, like that was when I really started to notice fashion and it was through couture that I became obsessed with fashion. But it was really, I would say probably this idea of fantasy, that this unreal um, level of luxury and beauty that was almost like beyond a human level in a way. That was what it meant to me. And you were, you've been working in fashion for how many years altogether? This will, this will be my um, tw uh, 11th, 12th year in fashion. Yeah. So when did couture um, assert itself as a sort of, you know, fantasy fighter for you? Say it again, sorry. When, when the couture assert itself as this kind of fantasy fodder for you? When did you, you were working for Tom Brown for all that time. Um, yeah. You were working on very, very rigorous ready to wear that really shifted the boundaries of ready to right. wear. Right, so, right. Um, I mean, Tom, my experience at Tom was so, I mean, and you know this better than most people, like, so what he was doing in New York um, was groundbreaking and really was not even some of the shows. And that was the thing I loved about Tom is some shows were really ready to wear and some shows were really not ready to wear at all. And, you know, I think that it, it was approaching as close to a couture process as you could get as far as the rigor um, I remember one season that we did, you know, where he came to me, it was the first women's show in Paris and he had had an idea and he came to me and he said, you know, I want to do the entire show made out of tool, the entire collection. And that was the brief that we worked inside of and that he guided us through. And, but it was really, you know, it was really beyond ready to wear. And I think that there's nowhere else in New York I could have worked that could have prepared me for the kind of hours that go into a garment, the kind of, and the kind of rigor that, that we had at um, Tom Brown, for sure. So Tom Brown was the first time, obviously, that 
you know, it's my only other job before Scaparelli in fashion. So that was my first foray into this kind of um, approach. But really it was, you know, a teenager when the, the style channel came to town and watching, you know, fashion file and video fashion and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I was just transformed as a, like a teenager, 13, 14 year old in Dallas. So, yeah. Dallas was a pretty dressy city, wasn't it? I mean, a lot of couture clients said you, you, you must, when you were out and about, you must have seen some pretty, I mean, I know, what is it, the hair? The, the huge Texas hair. The oh, like, high to heaven or something, I don't know, yeah. Um, yeah, like putting a hole in the ozone layer kind of hair. Um, no, it was, I mean, that was not my Dallas. I came from a very, you know, we lived outside of Dallas in the suburbs. My dad was a priest and we were, you know, really not a glitzy family. We're a very artsy family, but not a very glitzy family. But because my dad was a priest, I had a, a tuition basically to a sort of fancy school in Dallas. And so I would go from my weekly life at home in Plano, which is exactly looks how it sounds, to going and staying in Highland Park at my friend's houses and just completely, um, you know, that was really like what changed me, I think, was seeing the way that those, the way the homes were decorated, the way that the, the women were dressing and um, Highland Park Village, you know, these really like, as you said, like it's kind of like LA, Dallas has like a little bit of that LA glam even back then and even more now i think so it was fascinating i got both sides of the story kind of so so as a sort of psychological um as a bit of a psychological back backdrop fashion would have seen seemed like a real escape for you then yeah yeah it always was something that i was interested in that no one else around me knew anything about other than consuming but you know, I never, ever remember until I went to FIT, I never remember having a conversation with anyone in my orbit that um, really was interested in fashion. It was always something that was kind of my left of center kind of attraction. And um, I mean, for a lot of reasons, the church being one of them, fashion became like this kind of, um, you know, as you said, like an escape for me. And uh, I ran all the way here, I guess. I mean, it was really that, you know, it was a really dramatic running away, not a rebellion necessarily, but a real exodus when I did leave. I, I have to say that, you know, from Plano, Texas, we're talking to you today in the Place Vendôme in Paris. Yeah, yeah. So, this, this sort of beating heart of haute couture. And you're actually in Scaparelli's original studio, aren't you? I'm actually, at the moment, I'm in the attic of the Place Vendôme. I'm on the fifth floor. And yes, like when the company re was restarted and our owner restarted everything, he bought back the original salons and the whole space. So it is um, surreal to say the least, beyond. It's an interesting point, I think. Fashion was by far force a sort of private pleasure for you you said you had, didn't have anyone else to talk to about it. but 
And then couture has always struck me it, that, that its strength is that it is a mm -hmm. private pleasure as well. And um, that, that I mentioned at the beginning, you know, the things that equip couture for this particular time, the, the notion of preciousness is very important to couture. It's not disposable clothing. Mm -hmm. um, also, it, which makes it a sort of sustainable thing, but also the private, the private pleasure of, of, of couture. You know, there's this debate, we've been talking about it a lot over the last six months, um, whether fashion will become, will re return, will, will evolve out of this into something that's more discreet or whether extravagance will right. still. And, and, and fashion's a funny, and the couture's a funny paradox because it's like discreet extravagance in a way. Right, right, completely, completely. And that's, I think, the nature of the client too. I mean, I think the real couture client is someone who is more discreet than we would think, or than I definitely thought. Um, but the nature of what they're investing in is, an, it's like an essential extravagance for them, you know? And I find that really um, fascinating. It's just rare today to see some, to see somebody investing in an extravagance, which is an extravagance for them, you know? And I think that that's, you're always going to have clients who, you know, or influencers or people who are outward facing, you know, embodiments of the brand in a way, but the real um, backbone of our couture business are really these women who shall remain nameless who are very very discreet and it's really a personal pleasure for them or passion for them and it's just fascinating really and it's something you really don't get as much in ready to wear so it it feels like this bizarre and amazing microcosm to be you know finally a part of in some weird way so that they, I wonder if that, the, those uh, that clientele is a sort of early adopters in one way, in, in that they're they're quite social media averse, aren't they? Um, you know, I was talking to Michael Halpin, who's a, a wonderful, I guess, demi couturier in London, and he said once he, once his dresses leave his studio, he never sees them again. Right. Totally. I mean, that's. I think one of the one of the biggest um, joys that you can have as a designer is to know that someone is really wearing and living in and loving your your pieces and also the pieces that you create with the atelier because it's different than I mean I think that the kin the kindredness that I feel with the members of the atelier here it's very different for me than it felt in ready in ready to wear where. I mean, obviously, it's not made at a factory, you know, over in Italy or overseas or whatever. I mean, you know, by name, every single person who's worked on a piece and many times it's one or two people. So there's a real connection between, I mean, you can't look at a garment and be like, in a way, it's like, that's not mine at all. That's like a collective effort in a way that I had not experienced before. Um, but yes, it is um, a huge uh, honor and, and it's surreal to see things, to know things are out there and not be seeing them. But, but the things that you've been doing, some of the things you've been doing have been so extraordinary and so 
um, in the in that in that what fifteen months since you've been at Scaparelli, yeah, complex and elaborate. I mean, sometimes quite cerebral in mm -hmm. in, in the elaboration, but but nevertheless, real showpieces. Yeah, and, and and it's it is. I just find it so bizarre that they go somewhere, and right. they have a life somewhere. Right. But what is that life? Well, now I feel like when we start working on the collection, we think about this one. Like, you know, everyone's always like, "Who is the Scaparelli woman? Who's your client?" For me, I've never, and maybe this is my Tom Brown upbringing, but I've never really like hung my hat on one specific person to be like an archetype for whoever this, whoever I'm designing for. But we do model the design process after, you know, how I kind of perceive the personality and the life of Elsa herself. Because my whole thing is like, what would she be designing today if she was alive? You know, I don't, it, it is in a way, it's um, a performative act, you know, designing for somebody as iconic as her. Um, and what I love about her is that she was this kind of rigorous professional during the day. And she wore these, you know, straight shouldered, you know, skirt suits. And, and there was always some surreal twisted jewelry or some sub subversion of some kind. But then at night, she would throw these kind of insane parties, like costume parties and dress up like things. And there were these real, you know, I mean, it was a, a, a reality versus a surreality, surreality, you know? And I think that when we're approaching the collection, we think about it in the same way. There are pieces that now we can look at and say, that's for this client, that's for this client. We know exactly who will go for those real world pieces. And then there are other pieces like last, I think it was last night or two days ago, Regina King wore one of the Scaparelli gowns to the Emmys from the last couture show. And for me, like when a when a gown like that comes out, I'm like, I know it's gonna have a home somewhere. It's just a countdown until it finds the right home. And you know, so there is like I it's rare to sell one of the more insane pieces unless it's a collector's item um to to one of the real, real clients. You know, I think she wants something much more real, much more forever, much more functional. So do, do you mean do you mean that Regina King was wearing a Scaparelli outfit with the Breonna Taylor t-shirt. The the pink suit that she wore with the Breonna Taylor t-shirt was Scap ready to wear. But then there was this, there was a lot a virtual red carpet and she wore that sapphire blue gown with all of the stones all over it um, for the virtual red carpet. So we had a, a date night with Regina the, the other night. Oh, was that, 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 that completely contradicts what I just said about when the dress leaving the studio, you never yeah. see it again. That's a, that's an interesting, that's just what she's, a, I mean, apart from the fact that she is probably my favorite actress at the moment and Watchmen was my favorite TV show. Beyond, yeah. beyond. It's my favorite TV show. Yeah. Uh, Scaparelli, the way that you have configured it does attract, I imagine, a certain kind of person, whether you, you can't say whether it's, you know, you can't define it, but nevertheless, there is, there is yeah. a, you have to have a, a certain appetite for life to respond to what you've been doing, I think. I, the word I always think about is just something a little alternative, because this is like alternative couture, 
because if you want a huge, you know, extravagant tool ball gown, you know where you can go to find that. And I, I think that for me at Scaparelli, we're not going to do that. We are not. I mean, there are there's always a place for that kind of, you know, major shut the red carpet down moment for sure. It's one of my favorite things to do. Have you ever done but, that? Um, not at Scaparelli, but I feel like, you know, no, at Scaparelli, yeah, we did we did like the Beyonce gown, yes. which shut down, you know, like it's always something that it's one of the best parts of the job is that like conceiving and, and also designing for this really inspiring people. Um, but, um, I forgot where I was going with that. What was the question? Go it was, um, anyways, that's no, one of my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. Shut, there's always that place for the, shut the, shut the red carpet down moment. And then just before that. I mean, it was really like the quieter moments I think are what are more in a way almost even more interesting they're more nuanced and like you said they're more relational and i think that that's something that's really been coming to the forefront in the midst of everything that's been happening is just the relational aspect of couture becoming more and more important and more i mean it will be it was the heartbeat of couture um before this and i think it will be even more that a lot of these people who are buying couture, their lives have been less affected probably than most people's lives. And their love of fashion and that kind of essential extravagance that we were talking about isn't going away. You know, so I think that it's it's through those personal connections that we can continue to evolve, I think, in, in the realm of couture specifically. So what has been happening over the last six months? I mean. There was a, during the the digital couture uh, days in Paris. Yeah, you you made a film about drawing the new collection. Yeah, yeah. And I, another action. Yeah. I, I, I ask you about that because it's it's interesting how you have inserted yourself into the story. Like like when you did the show in Paris, a show in Paris, you sat on the runway drawing drawing the collection as the models as a the 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 outfits walked walked all around you. Yeah. And I I thought it, it was you introduced that was your first big show. That was you introducing yourself to the fashion world. Yeah. But at the same time it was it was there's not that sense of, you know, I'm the backroom boy. No. You no. No. And I think that a lot of it comes from the fact that being from Plano, Texas being an American, being such an outsider. I think that there's something that that can resonate with people about seeing, like the whole concept behind that show was, and we kind of revisited it with the film over quarantine, was the dichotomy between the life that I was living, you know, I was sleeping on the floor at my friend's apartment, designing a couture collection in Chinatown without really knowing, without having the job, it was a proposal. And then, you know, a month later, I was in the Place Vendome getting the job. And I found that I remember walking to work, it was December, or walking to the studio, I was unemployed, I'd left Tom Brown. 
and I didn't have anything to do. And I was literally putzing around Chinatown. And then I got a, an ask to make this proposal for, for SCAP. And I just remember what I was listening to me as I was walking to the, to the studio with nothing to do. And I said, like, you know, this is so amazing that if I got this job, that people would, the clothes that people would see were conceived in this dirty, freezing cold, shithole Chinatown studio. And to me, if I had seen something like that when I was 16 and I had been given permission to dream on this level, like that is what would, I would have, it could have changed my life earlier, you know? And I think that that's part of why I just like find that so compelling in a weird way. And I wanted people to know this is not, I'm not a trained couturier. I'm not, uh, you know, I wasn't brought up in the French houses, but it doesn't mean I don't have something interesting to say and don't have something to contribute to this world of couture. So that was kind of why. And then when I was working on Collection Imaginaire, it was, it was a similar thing. I was in lockdown in New York. You know, everything was happening. It was right in the middle of the protests and everything that were happening, Black Lives Matter, everything. And um, it was this incredible moment in the city and it was right when the couture shows would have been. And it was just such a stark contrast that I wanted to highlight that and say like, you know, even through all of this, even with so much has been taken away from us, I could still go to the park, Washington Square Park and sketch out, you know, a 35 look collection and, that that could you know somehow be enough in that moment you know and um that's kind of it felt like a it felt like a weird deja vu um in some twisted way but in drawing that collection you actually did draw a collection it wasn't just wishful thinking you were actually making designing outfits what what happened to them all what happens to them all the co collection what imaginaire you called it yeah. So it was, yeah, it was a collection that at the moment only could exist in my imagination. And what we've done is we've, we've actually received requests from um, celebrity stylists and from a few clients that they would be interested in going through the process of having those pieces created for them for an event or just for whatever. So the idea is that we would actually bring to fruition and we're working on, um, I actually just launched the first pieces yesterday um, and this is in tandem basically with the new collection that we're launching for the end of January so you know we're not going to produce the entire thing and I it also like the film itself was the moment you know it, it didn't exist in order to delay you know giving us a moment later um, but I think that we'll have some really great, you know, red carpet, whenever the red carpets happen again, we can have some great red carpet moments off that collection too. So whenever the red carpet happens again. Yeah, a real, I mean, the, the digital ones, you know, are great in the meantime, but it's not the same. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off-limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Um, what, what, I mean, another interesting thing about couture is it kind of exists outside the normal fashion calendar. I, I know it's shown twice a year during clearly defined days, but I mean, it's, it's much more of a, of a sort of fluid proposition made to yeah. offer. Um, yeah. It's the customers are getting in touch with you all the time. Um, yeah. It's sort of evolved, a collection evolves beyond the point totally. that you actually offered it to the world. Totally. So those people who you mentioned not having suffered particularly, and God knows every day you pick up a newspaper and I don't know why they think it's a good idea to balance all the, the tales of hardship with the, the right. stories of these people who just made right. $8 billion yesterday. <laughs> right. It seems to encourage a sort of re- revolutionary strand of thinking. Um, 
Mm. But they, those, so those women haven't been coming to you and, and saying, could you, you know, I really need a, not red carpet either. I need this, you, you mentioned. You know yeah, I think like, you know, it. it's not to say that like things, we're still proceeding with, you know, producing the the orders that we had from the last collection where we're still like, you know, steaming. For, I think that the house itself shut down, of course, like for some time in Paris, and we're really just getting started again. So as you said, it's a completely, it's a year round global. I mean, that's one of the most amazing things about it. It's like, we can always, we're always at the ready to take care of whoever we need. And that part is really starting up again. And it's going to be really interesting to see how the tastes of the clients have changed, you know, because even if, even no matter what has happened to anyone financially, everyone is from a lifestyle point in a different place. So I think that we'd be looking at, at when we do, and you know, when we do take orders, they're going to be different kinds of orders than they were before. So, you know, whether that's more, comfortable pieces or more cozy pieces or pieces that feel less event oriented and just life oriented, you know, um, that's something that I been thinking about a lot for, for the next collection. And I think, I mean, obviously all of us have, so, um, but yeah, we're just really getting started back up here again. I think in the spirit of Scaparelli, your, your clothes are extreme. Some of the clothes you design are extremely eccentric. And yeah. I would imagine that that has a sort of intellectual appeal. Um, yeah. You know, that, that, yeah. that Scaparelli's clothes have, a, have, a, have had a life in history quite outside um, the fact that they were fashion garments. They, they became right. symbolic of the art, the art of the time, you know, that they were Completely. like a Picasso or a Cocteau or something. Right, right. And I think that, you know, that's the, that's her legacy, which is, I mean, if anyone, if I could do that today, or if anyone can do that in fashion today, like I am, I'm ready, you know, but chasing that dragon to create museum pieces. I mean, I always think about things going to museum, but trying to replicate what she did which seemed to be also so effortless and such a product of the time and place in which she lived would be, a, I think, an, a very arrogant disaster for me to do. So I'm just like, you know, I think that her legacy is so pure, it's so untouched. You know, we when she shuttered the house, it didn't have a Carl to bring it forward over decades, you know, it really stayed you know, shuttered. And I think that there, I'm, I'm very much trying to respect and honor and embody her ethos, but I think trying to, trying to replicate it um, in any way is, is trouble. Why do, you so, say, why do you say you think about museums? You, you like the idea of your clothes ending up in a museum, do you? Of course, I mean, I think if we're not, if we're not, chasing that level, you know, I think that it's, uh, cause we can do that here. We can do museum ready pieces from a quality perspective and 
and hopefully from an intellectual perspective as well. That's definitely something I want to work up to. This is my third season here. And you know, I've been thinking about that a lot too. And Tim, like, I think I speak for a lot of designers when I say that like the, the fuse, the amount of time that you're given as a designer starting at a house is so brief these days. I think you get probably two, maybe three seasons before people start having the conversation. And I have these conversations too. Is it working? Is it not working? Like we're ready to move on, you know? And I love reading old reviews. I love reading. Like it, I dive into those like old guest care Balenciaga reviews or old. I was recently looking at the um, Ricardo Tishi at Givenchy review. There was a real evolution there, you know, and that the designers were given a chance to not only learn about what it means to work at a new company, a new country, a new atelier, everything, but also learn about your own design process and how you approach, um, how you like, how you want to approach what you want to say. And I think that that's something that, you know, I worked at with Tom for 10 years and I thought I would understand what it would feel like to go from being somebody's right hand to being the person who has to step out at the end of the show and wave, you know, and say, thank you. And, but I had no idea. Really, I had no idea. And I like, what do you I mean had, by that? I had been, you know, cause we, at Tom, we would always be on the backside and I would always watch it. I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, but it's, I, it's really my story. Like I would watch him go out and take the bow and then come back. And I would always, you know, I was so proud of him. I was so proud to be there, but I would always also wonder like, when's it my turn? And I think that I, I thought I knew what it would feel like. I thought I knew what the pressure would feel like, or I thought I would knew, I thought I would know like what it was like to maintain a vision throughout the entire creative process. You know, when there's so many opinions and when there's so many moving parts and when there's so many personalities involved. And I think that is the challenge. The challenge is not really having something to say, it's maintaining that line of thought through the months of the creative process. And it's something I'm getting better at, you know? And as you said, like my first show was imperfect, but brave which is like honestly an amazing compliment for me but i want i want it to become more perfect i think it's something i'm working it's it's interesting you mentioned ricardo at Givenchy, the evolution of ricardo at Givenchy, because by the time he left Givenchy, if you said the word Givenchy to people they would think of what ricardo tishy had how <laughs> ricardo tishy had remade the house now do you think at at scaparelli that there is and, I, and, and you see for Givenchy, there's always Audrey Hepburn, you know, right. there's this right. image. And so there's this benchmark that everybody gets judged against. And then he made that house into Ricardo Tisci's house. Right. Do you, would you enjoy the prospect of, of Scaparelli becoming, of your personality being so eventually infused into the house of Scaparelli that people couldn't could only think about it in in the terms of your of your aesthetic your creativity i know you say that you're that you are very very conscious of what she achieved in the work you're doing for the house but as you look at it now do you think ah that's a rosebery 
I would hope that what I would do here, what I do do here, would be that strong and that intense that people could look at a gown and be like, oh, that's Daniel at SCAP. And, and I don't think that it has to, that that has to take away from her and her legacy at all. You know, Carl's legacy really doesn't compete with Coco's. It's really like side by side. And um, I do think that we're living in that time where people really crave to feel the person behind the creation. Mm. I think that the stronger you can make the personality, that that through line between who I am and what I want to say and what we're putting out there, that has to be completely synced up. And I think with all the the people like Phoebe, you know, like you really felt, I mean, there wasn't like someone like competing with her at Celine as far as like a legacy goes, like the founders, you know, it wasn't the same thing, but I think you look at the people who it, who are really clicking with their audience and it's the people who are really um, expressing like themselves in their work. And it is a personality thing. Like you have to be able to go there, I think. And I am. Charisma plus. Now you, you, you talking about museums and, and, and this, about the coming out of this situation and how one thing that you can see is the importance of the relationship that the, that people feel a relationship with the house through the designer. If I said to you that, you know that, that, that stupid million dollar question that has been asked literally every single year I've been working in fashion, uh, is couture dying or, or, or what is the future of couture? And I know you have something to say about an industry which seems so bent on, on painting the future quite black for itself in a way, you know, you said nobody else asks what is the future of what they do, like the way fashion says, what's the future of this? I, I think that, that this moment has really revealed to all of us, and I, I know you feel the same way on some level, like we, you know, any thinking person in fashion knows this, that this, this moment, this global meltdown, everything has revealed to fashioners our own, you know, irrelevance on such a deep, deep level. And I think that it's not to say that exp self-expression is irrelevant or that the love of fashion is irrelevant or that the power of fantasy and imagine like that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the, the, the bones of the industry in which we like, it is built on, for me, like very um, flawed ideas of how to I mean, it's really like to brainwash people into thinking that, they, I mean, I like have to like control myself because I could go really dark about it and I don't want to do that. But I do think that fashion has to get real with itself right now. I know when this started, the, the pandemic started that everyone was asking, you know, is this when fashion's really going to change? You know, is this when things could really shift? Is this when our, you know, we could attempt to have some sort of moral high ground here because we're one of the most wasteful industries. We're, you know, one of the most materialistic. We're one of the most, you know, exclus exclusionary, you know, all those things. And I just, um, I feel like we have to really reassess and really admit that um, there is something irrelevant about what we bring to the table right now. 
And that's okay. It doesn't have to be relevant right now. Fashion shows don't have to be relevant right now. There's so many other things that are more important. And I wish that fashion people could allow themselves to sit with that that discomfort. And I think you're right. Like, you know, people ask, what is the future of couture? What is the future of this? What is the future? Like, it is so, fashion is so obsessed with predicting itself, you know? And I think it's because we deep down know how, like, sort of not essential we are in some ways, you know? And I think that there's an insecurity there. Um, so, I don't know. I've been thinking a lot about it. I think a lot, everyone in a creative role here in, in the industry has. And um, it's some, I'm not saying I have ans- all the answers, but it's definitely something that um, I just hope we can allow ourselves to be uncomfortable and to listen to what what the answers could be. But but if when you're working at the level of couture, though, yeah, you you're obviously liberated from you know a lot of the concerns that um, that that dog other designers. You know, you've you've talked about designers like Galliano and McQueen who were just completely overloaded with responsibility and you know at some point creativity and and self-care and all sorts of things suffer um in in your situation do you feel you're talking about making clothes for women who don't have to worry about you know being the furlough running out on their on their job or anything is it kind of liberating to be in a situation like that for a creative person that, that obviously you have your sense of social responsibility, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you are making clothes that exist in a gorgeous bubble, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's a, it's a very, you know, we don't, we don't really, we're not really wasteful here. Everything is made in house. It's really, um, we don't have to engage with the underbelly of the industry. It, no. And um, so, yeah, it is, it does feel like a luxury, a luxury of conscience or something maybe, but um, I still, you know, feel connected to the larger family in which we all are members in a way. And it's um, and we are starting to make ready wear, ready to wear too. Like we are, we are doing that. We just did our second ready to wear collection last year, and we're about to release our third one next month. So, you know, we are, we are not just a couture, a couture house here, but it's true. It is true, but you know, that could change also. Really, I mean, the industry itself is not really changing. And at Tom Brown, when I started, there were you know, 12 employees. And when I left, there were like over a hundred, you know, those things can happen so fast. And I think that the industry just isn't really in a place to support that healthy growth sometimes. So. You made a rather, you made a rather, um, a, a really great analogy, I think, between the fashion industry and the film industry. And yeah. the film industry came to be dominated by titans. Right. As the fashion industry has come to be dominated by titans. So you have Louis, right. B, you had Louis B. Mayer in the film industry. You have Louis Vuitton in the fashion industry. And then at some point, there was this kind of conceptual shift and independence suddenly 
had this power that they never had before. And you had the 70s in, in film, which were just like this golden age in American movie making of independent directors coming through and um, a new wave. Um, I suppose in fashion, we have had that in the 90s. There was a sort of, I think the 90s in fashion were a bit like the 70s in film. There was that sort of explosion of creativity on so many different levels. But, but with that analogy, how do you see, you know, you've, we've seen what happened to the film industry. We've seen how giantism is kind of, you know, it's just not working. The tenant, which was going to save the movie business, hasn't saved the movie business. If you, if you tip that analogy into the fashion world, what do you see? What do you, do you, do you think that this is going to be, Ultimately, this is going to be a good thing for independent designers. Do you consider yourself an independent designer in a way? I do think that, you know, we've been talking a lot about having sort of like a startup mentality here because we are, even if it is a storied house, it is a really small, um, I mean, not really small, but a really, you know, kind of more precious kind of ever than a lot of those huge like Bruckheimer level level of houses, you know? And that's what I think that when you look at the, the big guys and the way that the quantity of pieces that they're producing per item and they, it's just, there's no way to, for me, to make that many of something, maintain a certain level of quality, desirability, and the, level, the definition of luxury. And, um, you know, I think that now, like, I always think about, like, you know, couture is probably the closest thing to that kind of prehistoric way of getting dressed, where so, like, one person would make one garment for another person, you know, and you look at the kind of um, price tags that you have to engage with in order to get that level of, you know, um, you know, care and service and, and everything and quality. And I just, you know, I, I do think that as these houses become huge, that there will be, and I think you already feel this, and it's it's definitely not fully evolved or or fully thought out yet, but I do think that there, there will be a moment again for um, smaller houses to produce things that feel more personal, mm. more precious. And um, that that will become meaningful again and trendy again, because it has to be, you know, it has to be something that feels trendy too in some sick way in order for people to get back on board. But um, yeah, I mean, I also, everything put in the context of social media, I mean, everything we knew about the way history was cycling through doesn't really matter anymore, it seems. So it could be an all of the above answer as well i don't know but i do think to your question i do think that this will be a moment for smaller houses for sure and and the designer in the designers in those smaller houses will become more important because as you mentioned before there's going to be this personal relationship between the designer and the customer i mean it's interesting what i've, I've heard a few things coming out of china that in you know this first tier second tier third tier business and the, the huge cities there but but advanced Chinese customers, the the people who are who are bringing fashion back in China, are looking for basically names that no one's heard of. Exactly. Totally. Totally. 
Do you remember, like, I don't know, when Alessandro started at Gucci, it was right when Demna started at Balenciaga. And before that season, there was this weird no man's land of nothing happening in fashion. And everyone was saying, what is going to happen? What's the next thing? No, it, it was like a, a sequence of very boring fashion weeks. I remember this vivid, this was like probably what, like eight years ago or something like that. And then Demna came out at Gucci and it was like, changed the game. Something new came out. Then Balenciaga and the two of them kind of like introduced this new resurgence of activity. And it feels a little, to me, I feel like we're back into like a little bit of a barren wasteland as far as we don't know what the answers are to these things. We can't really even anticipate it. It's really going to come down to talent, you know, and new talent working today and, and coming and showing the way for something new and different. But fashion is so obsessed with analyzing itself for whatever reason. I don't know if you know the answer, but, um, Love analysis. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, but it's probably because we're full of Virgos to this industry is yeah. chock full of them. Full of Virgos. Happy Including birthday. Us. Thank yeah. you, you too. So anyways, that's, you know, I don't, I, do, I definitely do think so. And I think that we're hopefully right at the beginning of that next wave, for sure. And, and do you feel yourself as part of that, as of that next wave? You, you, you've been received, um, you know, as a, as a sort of unknown quantity in a way, people are fascinated, I think, that in, in fashion for the last while, when there's been movement within houses, generally it's been a sort of slightly circular mm -hmm. motion. And then Daniel Roseberry comes along and, and people were mm -hmm. good at. Totally, right? totally. Has that been good for you? I've really enjoyed, um getting to meet and know people here and really just be just try and be myself and i have felt really graciously welcomed to be honest by the french press specifically and um by the u.s press and it's just great and i have felt um embraced and and kind of like people are rooting for me in some way in some you know and it's and so even in some small way like it but for me like it's definitely been something that I haven't felt like people have been against me for the most part and um that's been really nice really nice. but you think the era of mystery was useful that um you know people look at you and they you know people look at you and they think there's a man with a tale to tell like an ancient mariner or something. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I definitely, I think there was a curiosity at the beginning too. And maybe there still is, I don't know, but I definitely still feel that I am um, just finding my groove, you know? And um, the first collection was orgasmic, as you said. And the second collection felt more focused and like a, a step in a more um, kind of just in a more focused, more sure-footed direction. And then, you know, as everything's been happening, I've spent a lot of time thinking about 
what's been working, what hasn't been working. It's such an amazing time to pause and reflect. And I am so excited and, you know, horny for the next show because it's got to be, I just, I hope it's January. We don't know, but I live for the, I live for those shows. And I think that um, just a chance to be more focused is what I've been thinking about the most. Well, Daniel, thank you so much. Um, praying for January and really looking forward to whatever comes next. But um, I think getting back to me harping on mystery, there's, there's a mystery in the clothes as well. And I, and I find that really, you know, you, you think about those clothes. So if that's your thumbprint, then keep up thank with you. Everything. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate you always. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, give us a rating, and you might be interested in joining the Business of Fashion's global membership community, BOF Professional. Our members receive exclusive deep dive analysis, regular email briefings, as well as unlimited access to our archive of over 10,000 articles, our new iPhone app, and all of the online courses and learning materials from BOF Education. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.